Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 35 of Greens with Envy, the podcast where we talk about where we've been, who we've seen, who we've talked with, and just golf courses in general. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, joined as always by my friend and colleague, Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano, and this is the second of a special two-part Greens with Envy miniseries about the golf with a U. Last time we talked about Mississippi, five courses in, I don't even know, two and a half days. Today it's, I don't even know, it could be 52 courses. I think it's five or six more courses in also two and a half days. Guy, if you missed episode 34, went to 12 courses at 11 locations in five days, and he didn't fall asleep when he came home for a full day. It's kind of amazing. Anyway, uh, we'll get to that in just a second. A few quick housekeeping notes on this final episode of Greens with Envy of 2021. Greens with Envy is one of the longer-running podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network, but it is not the only one. We also have, of course, Tartan Talks, which is now in its sixth year, where Guy talks with members of the ASGCA about their work and so much more. Off the course, where I talk with really any turf pro about anything other than their job. There are some great episodes planned for early 2022. Beyond the Page takes you a little deeper into the stories and columns inside each month's magazine. Wonderful Women of Golf, which will be going monthly, up from bi-monthly in 2022. Rick Wolfel talking with, really, some of the wonderful women in this industry. And there might be a new monthly series starting in 2022. Stay tuned for more news about that. We do, of course, put out a monthly magazine. We're working on the January issue now, but we also put out a weekly fast and firm email newsletter. If you want that, if you don't already get it, go to www.golfcourseindustry.com. Sign up on the homepage once a week, almost always on Tuesdays. All right, I think that's enough for me. Guy, you've been quiet for three minutes, which, if you're not in writing mode, is is a rarity. How you doing? Not so well, Matt. You're not doing well. Why? It's Christmas week. We had a, get this, a guest listener to our episode about Mississippi. How do you have a guest listener? Isn't everybody a guest? Hello, friends. Well, this particular person is near and dear to me, and she had never listened to one of our podcasts before. Yes. My wife. L-Dog? Three months. L-Dog. Lindsay tuned in. Wow. What'd she think? She listened to the whole episode? We didn't scare she her away? She listened to the whole episode, but okay. she was... Let's just say a little bit bothered, perturbed, pissed off about something that happened around the 16-minute mark, Matt. You know what happened around the 16-minute mark of our last podcast? If I'm not editing the podcast, I seldom listen back to it. Um, I don't know what happened to the 16-minute mark. We were talking about Mississippi, probably. Well, I'm going to have to apologize to you. Okay. Because around that mark, I talked over you. You were trying to make a statement, and I just went right through you. She does know we talk over each other for like eight or nine hours a day, right? So like any couple, we assess our strengths and weaknesses. Yes. And one of my weaknesses that is frequently pointed out is that I talk over her. She noticed that (laughs) in our podcast. And when I asked her, what do you think of the podcast? The first thing she said was, you did it. And I go, I did what? She goes, you don't even realize what you did because you do it so much. You talked over Matt. So Matt. I'm looking at you face-to-face in our studio. This is so unnecessary. Eye-to-eye, friend-to-friend, co-worker-to-co-worker. I'm sorry 
for talking over you around the 16-minute mark of Greens with Envy number 34. I will accept it. I don't know why you felt the need. Uh, Lindsay, if you're listening to this one, uh, I, thanks. I, I don't know. Uh, didn't bother me. But if it bothered Lindsay, then, you know. My better half, I guess, is trying to make me a better man. She's very nice. I've actually met her in person one time. I like her. Anyway, uh, Louisiana, you wrote on the format, let's go around Louisiana. But, of course, Louisiana is Cajun country. The closest thing, I would I would say, honestly, and I mean this as a compliment, it is the closest thing the United States has to a foreign country. Not, not parts of Florida, not Texas, which would love to be, I'm sure, its own foreign country. Not California, which people joke about being a foreign country. Louisiana really feels like a different country. And a lot of that is is the Cajun. And again, I mean this in totally a good way. I love Louisiana. I love New Orleans. But you wrote, let's go, G-E-A-U-X. Let's go around Louisiana. Inspired by former LSU football coach, Ed O. Yeah, I can't even do an Ed O voice. It is, it is so thick and gravelly. You know, I thought maybe I was going to run into Edo on a golf course somewhere in Louisiana because he does have more time on his hands these days. I should have come up with this joke five seconds earlier, but uh, Ed Orgeron's voice is about as thick and gravelly as a bunker with the wrong kind of soil before an extensive project lining it and helping it out. Wow. That is quite an analogy, and we don't want to turn off all of our listeners right away. There will be a little bit of a LSU football talk towards the end of this podcast. And there will be no more analogies about a voice sounding like a bunker. So uh, let's break down golf in Louisiana. How many courses? How many facilities? What's the public-private breakdown? What are some of the PGA events? You Because you did this for Mississippi. I'm sure you have this for Louisiana. According to the National Golf Foundation, there are 131 golf facilities in Louisiana. 71 of them are daily fee. 29 are municipal. 31 are private. There's a PGA Tour event played in New Orleans, the Big Easy, each spring. And it's a unique event, the Zurich Classic of New Orleans, which is the only team competition on the formal part of the PGA Tour schedule. Three PGA Championship winners hail from the state of Louisiana, Hal Sutton, Jay Herbert, and David Toms. And then one of the most exciting young players on the PGA Tour, Sam Burns, is from Louisiana. And he went to LSU. And, yeah, he, almost everywhere you go, people are talking about Sam Burns now down there. I mean, he, he looks like he's on a uh, fast upward trajectory to become one of the top 15 players in the world here. And you know who else is from Louisiana? And this is one of the more overlooked figures in the history and development of golf in the United States. Have you heard of the name Joseph Bartholomew? You wrote it on the format. I didn't have a chance to look it up. I don't know who Joseph Bartholomew is, no. So there's a municipal golf course in New Orleans called the Joseph Bartholomew Golf Course. Unfortunately, I did not have time to make it there. Joseph Bartholomew, during the golden age of golf, was an African-American man working in New Orleans. Uh, golf construction showed a penchant for the game, real young caddying background so he went to new york and trained a bit under seth rayner and then brought everything he learned from seth rayner to new orleans and designed a few golf courses there uh a few of the courses at city park which we'll get to hmm. 
later in the podcast, uh, the, the Poncha train course, which is now the Joseph Bartholomew municipal golf course. And he also designed Meditare country club, which, uh, Seth Rayner's name is on that, but Joseph Bartholomew was the person in the ground, basically carrying out Seth Rayner's vision for that golf course, which I believe was just restored again. So when you look at those overlooked figures in golf history and golf construction history, Joseph Bartholomew is certainly one of them. And it's, it's a bit of a sad story because a lot of the courses he worked on, he wasn't allowed to play because he was African-American. Could you imagine that here in 2021, 2022, somebody designing a golf course and not being allowed to play the, the place that they put so much blood, sweat, and tears into? It seems counterintuitive because who knows a course better than the architect and the superintendent and the crew um, as well. But to take away the right to play a course for the person who built it, like, <laughs> like you let them on, I don't know, once a month, when, once every other month, three few times a year, whenever they have time, whatever, to come back and, and you know, see how it's playing. Uh, no, it, it makes absolutely no sense. But that was where we were. How many years ago? Not that long ago. The golden age, the 1920s. Yeah. And, and yeah. speaking of that era, we're getting ready to release a podcast about, about Marion Hollins, who's going into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2022. And it's a fabulous Tartan Talks episode that I recorded with Jan Beljan and Forrest Richardson. And she was really overlooked and is finally getting her due. And I think as time goes by, Joseph Bartholomew could be one of those people that gets the due that he deserves and could eventually find himself in, in the the World Golf Hall of Fame or, or that type of place. He's in a lot of different sports Hall of Fames down in Louisiana and New Orleans. So one of those really overlooked figures in golf history that, you know, sadly didn't get the recognition when he was alive, but could be getting that recognition here soon as we move forward. I feel like this could be a new semi-regular feature on Tartan Talks, which is, you know, I, there's, I don't know if there's enough to do a monthly for a year, or even quarterly. Uh, for a few years, but you've you've highlighted Marion, and now you could highlight Joseph. You could do special episodes where you talk with people about the legacies of of maybe historically overlooked architects. This is not—I don't think this is a bad idea. And one of the people I spent time with when I was in Louisiana was Jeff Bloom, the American Society of Golf Course Architects past president. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a Houston-based golf course architect working all over the place, does some work in Louisiana, and he met me out on one of my visits. And we had this conversation over dinner, who would be some overlooked figures in classical and modern golf course architecture history that would make for good retrospective tartan talks. And you know, one of the, I won't go on this rant that I go on quite frequently here, but one of the sad things about golf course architecture is how it's presented and covered to a mainstream golf audience. It's really, you only hear about the, the same five to seven architects mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And that's one of the reasons why we launched the Tartan Talk series was to give listeners and people inside the industry a look at and to get to know some of these architects that are doing outstanding work that just don't get the mainstream golf coverage. So I think we could be doing some more retrospective architectural podcast on Tartan Talks. Uh, going forward here, but that's not why we're here with Greens with Envy. No. Number no. 35. So let's start with Central Louisiana. Uh, you list two courses there. You list two courses at Lake Charles. You list two courses at the Big Easy. So there's really, well, there's three golf stops, and then there's there's something else that you put into the format. We, uh, we'll see what happens there. So let's start with Central Louisiana, middle of the L. 
Links on the Bayou. This sounds, I like the name. Uh, it's in Alexandria. It opened almost 20 years ago. Tell me about Links on the Bayou. Who did you talk with, and, and, and what is this course's story? First off, there is a bayou on the property. It's on the peripheral. <laughs> there are feet holes that border it, including a really cool par three with a, get this, a beer, it's green. And you know what prominent golden age architect architects brought the Biarritz to the United States. It was C.B. McDonald and Seth Rayner. So there you go. Their influence is on the links of the bayou, although that's a it's a modern design by Mike Young. And I, here's what I found fascinating about Alexandria. It is really right in the middle of Louisiana, central Louisiana, a city now of around 45,000 people. And until 2002, the city did not have, or the region for that matter, did not have an 18-hole open to the public golf course. And then two, Links on the Bayou and Oak Wing opened the same year in 2002. So they went from zero 18-hole public facilities to two, and it all happened at the same time in the early 2000s. Uh, I had a chance to go to Links on the Bayou, which you could actually see the Alexandria Airport and Oak Wing from Links on the Bayou. So not only do they open two 18-hole golf courses finally open to the public at the same time, they're basically right next to each other. I didn't have time to make it over to Oak Wing because of the course we'll talk about next. But, no, got to go around links on the bayou with Superintendent Andrew Rash, uh, Director of Operations Jarrett Watson, and the pro Joey. I'll just call him Joey W. because I have not figured out how to pronounce his last name. <laughs> but he, he's uh, he's from Alexandria and yeah. knows the local golf scene very, very well. And it was really cool to drive around this golf course. Andrew Rash became superintendent in December of 20. 20, and he was showing me specific areas of the golf course where they've made improvements over the past year. Uh, Jarrett Watson was the superintendent from basically 2002 when the course opened to 2017, then got moved into a director of operations role, which is basically a general manager's role with how they have it set up. So you really have two experienced turf people there, or people that have those turf management skills, which is great. And uh, the, the course is dead flat, a lot of uh, water in the interior of the golf course. I cannot imagine there's a lot of topographical change in most of Louisiana. No, I did not see rolling elevation, no. severe elevation, or elevation for that matter at all. Basically on every course I visited, besides one we'll get to here at Lake Charles Country Club, there was some rolling spots on that okay. course. But links on the bayou, just the way it ended stands out. It's a par three that often plays into the wind, 203 yards from the back tees that has a carry over water and water all right facing a, a clubhouse that looks like a highway visitor center it's a unique uh, clubhouse architecture there but yeah that, that 18th hole i just could not believe it you know there are courses that end with par threes but one that ends with just a tough penal par three you don't see that very often yeah it does not sound like a, an easy par three, 200 plus yards over water into the wind. None of these things are giving me, it, it's giving me a little tension just thinking about it. But can you imagine a match coming down to that? Ugh, no, I don't want to. Both people's hearts would be racing. You know, so much could happen. I had a lot of fun uh, getting to know Andrew and Jarrett and Joey. And uh, Andrew is a Auburn alum, so him and I really... <laughs> click people that don't know me uh may not realize i'm a huge auburn football fan even though i have no connection to the university and it was also interesting to hear some of what their 
challenges are POA is a big challenge on Bermuda grass putting greens. Basically, everywhere I went in Louisiana, people are trying to figure out how to thwart it and hold it back. And you know, here we are in December, and it's appearing on on greens. And also, uh, you know, just the just how how do you get a flat site to to drain well? Obviously, there's got to be good stuff below the uh, surface. And there was a type of soil that links on the bayou was built on. Jared Watson was explaining me to this. I think it's called alluvia or alluvial soil, which is mm-hmm. uh, not quite sand, but it's a really uh, good soil to build golf atop. And, you know, like a lot of courses in Louisiana, the course has had a lot of rain in the past year. It has dealt with some wet stretches, but they're having a really nice year around. It seems to be on a really good trajectory. Andrew's going to be in his second year as superintendent and Jared's still there and, you know, have a local pro and jo- Joey. So I, I, I felt a lot of excitement and momentum at that golf course, Matt. Turning to, of course, just Wikipedia here, alluvium is loose clay, silt, sand, or gravel that has been deposited by running water in a stream bed or a floodplain in an alluvial fan or beach or in similar settings. It's sometimes also called alluvial deposit. It's typically geologically young and not consolidated into solid rock. So in case listeners don't deal with alluvium or alluvium soil uh, all that much, that's the... 30,000 foot overview on what it is. So from there, Andrew went home, which is literally on the golf course. He showed me that the house he lives in and the the, the development that links on the bayou is built around or near or surrounds the golf course. And in fact, he rides his uh, gator to and from work. So that's, (laughs) that's pretty cool that you don't even have to get in the, in a car or a truck and drive to the uh, maintenance facility. He just just pulls his gator out of the uh, backyard and, you know, he's basically at work. Jarrett, Joey, and I went across town to a place called Bringhurst Golf Course, and we're going to have much more on this course in our January issue. This is a place that I had been wanting to go for a long, long time. Matt, and you want to know why? Well, you write in your notes that it's seven acres. Is it the sheer size of it? I, I don't. Is it? I don't know. It's believed to be, and you know how much we love these golf courses. Par three, short courses, absolutely. It's believed to be the oldest par three golf course in the United States. Yeah, it's out. So there you go. It's a trendsetter. In the middle of Louisiana, in an urban neighborhood that is surrounded by athletic fields, playground, homes, funeral home, gas station that has killer fried chicken from what I was told, and the Alexandria Zoological Park, all borders the seven acres. It just happens to be what is believed to be the oldest par three course in the United States. In the middle of Louisiana, of all places. How did the first or well, i guess or the oldest uh, surviving maybe it wasn't the first but it's the oldest surviving i don't know either way the oldest par three course in the u.s how did it wind up in central louisiana is there a backstory there there's nobody knows for sure but there was somebody involved with the city his last name was bringhurst that, that built the golf okay. course the city was looking to expand its uh recreational offerings for residents and uh, there you go seven acre nine hole golf course it's in the same spot now that it's always been in uh there are some rocky moments in the, the history of the course in the late 1950s uh some dedicated people had to come in and save it and also around 2006 some dedicated people had to come in and save it now, now they have this group called friends of bringhurst it's a nonprofit. they basically oversee the operations of the golf course the company that manages links on the bayou for the city of alexandria also maintains bringhurst and They've done some great things to the golf course since reviving it. Uh, it reopened in 2010. Uh, Jarrett Watson was 
involved in that. And he actually did the shaping of the greens and helped install the irrigation and all the infrastructure stuff that had to be done. And all the money to save the golf course was done through fundraising and people that grew up playing there. There are sure. some unbelievable connections that people have to this golf course. Uh, Joey, the pro at Links on the Bayou, said that he first played there when he was three years old. And then when he became a te- teenager, he basically said the course was his babysitter growing <laughs> up. The people would just drop their kids off and they'd play Bringhurst all day. And, you know, you'd play hundreds you know, over a hundred holes some days. And it was kind of a sandlot mentality where the people that played there would rake the bunkers and change the pins. And, yeah, you know, cool. there, there was the Trotter family oversaw the maintenance of it for a long time from the, the late 1950s to 2006. And they would maintain the golf course too. But then uh, it's really changed a lot from what I understand in the last 15 years, the people who play there are a bit different. It's really an older crowd now, a lot of retirees, a lot of people that grew up playing there, not as kids play there as used to i mean it's a different era right like remember we're not that old matt well Mm -hmm. you're not that old you're not that old remember when we were kids we could go to the ball field play by ourselves we didn't need parents around Mm -hmm. it was kind of that mentality at bringhurst and then things change and you know people don't necessarily let their kids go off and play like that all day without adult supervision vision so that vibe of the course has changed but uh there's still a lot of people that that carry it on and there's so many stories of people growing up there And one of the really cool things is the course is just open Thursday through Sunday. There's a paid marshal that makes sure that everyone feels safe and, you know, that the the flow of play is going well. But you know what the green fees are? $8. No, it's free to play. Another free course. There's a few of them around the country. Yeah, there's one on the uh, Ohio-Pennsylvania border, Beale Park. And then there's one Matthew Wharton mentioned in one of his columns, Emory and Henry uh, College in Southwest Virginia. So there are a few out yeah. there, but Bringhurst is uh, totally free, open just four days a week. They get some good crowds. You know, they get all sorts of different types of players. I, I was told by Jarrett and Joey that there are people that are just Bringhurst players and have played there their whole life and have never gone on to play another <laughs> golf course. So, and you got to remember what I told you about links on the Bayou and Oakwing. Yeah. There was no 18 hole public golf course in Alexandria. Yeah until 2002 and I, I also had a chance last week he wasn't there the day i was there he was traveling i got to speak to a gentleman named frank brame whose family was heavily involved in the most recent course revival his uncle scotty brame is one of the real influential people in the community who helped save the golf course so really a community effort has kept this golf course going strong bonds uh you know with the people that played there in the in the land keep it going and also uh the links on the bayou team does a really good job of maintaining it there's some cool golden age architectural features i know on the first hole i noticed the principal knows uh there are only four bunkers on the entire golf course the greens uh total are twelve thousand square feet for nine holes so it's only around 760 yards the longest hole is the second 124 yards which plays to the zoo and you do i did hear monkeys squeaking as we were going around the golf course you can hear them really cool vibe uh the third hole is the shortest 51 yards the third tee kind of backs to the zoo got to see some of the zoo christmas lights that were up when it was getting dark uh the zoo train kind of goes right on the periphery of the property so children always wave to the golfers there were viewing hours going on at the funeral home across the street so you you saw a line of people there there were children playing on the uh the playground uh that was near the golf course so you heard all these all these noises you heard you just heard all these cool things it really is a uh i would say a slice of perfection in the middle of a you know, city of 45,000 people there in central Louisiana. I'm a huge fan of Bringhurst. Like I said, I've been wanting to go there for years. 
it'll be the uh, subject of our short course stories feature in our January issue. And Matt and I are as big of a advocates as there are for short courses. Mm -hmm. And it's the one where it might've all started in the United States. That is very cool. Mm -hmm. For the record, let's see, there was one other note that I wanted to make and that was, Oh, right. Before we get into central Louisiana, uh, I think we had talked last week or two weeks ago about the definition of a bayou. And in case folks were wondering, I had a vague remembrance of, of reading about bayous when I was a kid. So for the record, it is typically in flat, low-lying areas. It can refer to very, very slow-moving streams or rivers, often with poorly defined shoreline, a marshy lake or wetland, or a creek whose current uh, reverses every day because of the tide, uh, containing brackish water, highly conducive to fish life, and plankton. So that's uh, that's the definition of the bayou. Oh, and by the way, I got the local definition. What is bayou. the local definition? Of course, of I just bayou. talked over you right there. That's so, okay. Lindsay, if you're listening, I'm going to have to apologize on the next. Lindsay, episode. it's okay. So the local definition is bigger than a creek and smaller than a river. That's easier than what I said. Okay. Uh, the other thing, since we rattled off three free courses around the United States. If you know of a different free course, let us know. It's not that we don't want to pay for golf. It's that uh, we love the idea of a free golf course, and we, we really are curious uh, how many there are and where they are. So we have three. We have Buell Park. We have Bringhurst. And then what's what's the one that, uh, that Matthew Wharton mentioned? I believe Emory and Henry College in okay. rural southwest Virginia okay. has a nine-hole course that people can play for free. Well, let's go to Lake Charles, which I found out after you returned was one of eight test markets for McDonald's with its new McPlant vegetarian plant-based burger. You didn't try one because you didn't have time, but uh, also not sequitur to, to the show. You started at Lake Charles Country Club, recently celebrated its 60th anniversary now, is this – you didn't meet him, but is At this – At its current location. So. Right. Is this where you were going to meet the mayor, or was that the other course? That will be the next course. Okay, okay. Getting ahead of myself. Yeah, so from Alexandria, I headed towards Texas and made my way to southwest Louisiana to Lake Charles. And I, I didn't realize when I was in Lake Charles, I was closer to Houston than I was to New Orleans at mm -hmm. that point. Much closer to Houston than I was to New Orleans at that point. So yep. think about that, close to the Texas border. And Lake Charles – is one of those places that's had some tough luck over the last year and a half with natural disasters. It did not get a lot of it national attention, but two hurricanes, Laura and Delta, hit Lake Charles uh, in the hurricane season of 2020. The winds in Laura got up to 140 miles per hour. Jeez. And then a few weeks after that, Delta comes along. Then it got hit with a basically 10 to 12-day deep freeze, the stuff that a lot of people in the industry – uh, heard or read about or were affected by that, you know, affected Texas and Arkansas, went down to Lake Charles. And then there was what they're calling a thousand-year storm this year where they got 22 inches of rain in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So think about that, getting hit with those things, one after another, after another, after another. And I didn't get to my hotel that night before doing the visits uh, until late. And the of all the places I went on this trip, Lake Charles was the toughest to find a hotel room. And I was kind of thinking like, well, Lake Charles in December, what's the attraction? Well, I pull into the uh, hotel parking lot and it's just filled with 
trucks, basically pickup trucks, wake up in the morning, uh, you know, usually on the first one at hotel breakfast, I get down there, you know, around five fifty-eight, whatever, you know, before I work out, uh, I want to make sure I get some coffee and some when food. When does in breakfast me. start? I'll usually be there six. Two, I'll be there two minutes early. Usually six a.m. Yeah, and it was already packed. Like they were already refilling the, the coffee thing. A lot of uh, contractors have been in and out of Lake Charles over the last year and a half doing the, the the storm damage repair. I mean, and as I drove from the hotel to Lake Charles Country Club, I realized that yeah, this is a place that's been through a lot. There are still roofs being repaired. Get into Lake Charles Country Club and just had in-depth conversations with Superintendent Chris McCallum, who's been there uh, almost 20 years now, and the golf professional Stuart Kramer, who's almost been there for 20 years too. Uh, they're, they're really entrenched into that club, and you just go around with Chris, and you, know, you hear about everything that he's been through and you know what his team's had to recover from, and one after another. It takes a strong-minded person to uh, have to do that continually, and you can tell that the golf course at Lake Charles Country Club had been changed by storms over the years. Uh, Mike Varon, who's the club historian, uh, had them give me the the history of Lake Charles Country Club book that he did. And he just looked at some of the pictures and holes that are tree-lined now, or were once tree-lined, maybe only have six to ten trees from tee to green and just completely changed because of these storms. Uh, you know, the, the, the first hole is a par five, and you do have a little bit of a, an upward walk to the fairway that's about the most elevation I experienced in Louisiana. And you get to the green and look back and you have this view of Prion Lake and the clubhouse and the clubhouse is still being repaired because part of the roof got knocked off during the storms last year. They've had to install the clock by the first tee, I think like two or three times because it keeps on experiencing storm damage. And you know how big those clocks are. I mean, those are, those clocks are thousands of pounds. In fact, the day I was there, there was a, uh, an electrical specialist there doing the wiring below ground for Jeez. the most recent version of the clock. So it really hits you. And then, you know, you just hear stories from Chris McCallum, who was a really interesting person. Like I said, almost there for 20 years in his free time. He's a CrossFitter. I've not uh, met many superintendents who are CrossFitters, Matt. No, mostly just the, the, I don't know, I, I, maybe the time. I don't know. Yeah. And the club has a cool history. It's got a wall of champions. Uh, one of the, the people on that wall of champions is Gray Little, who was a longtime pro, very influential in, in the, the PGA circles in that part of the country. In fact, left of the first green. You know what's left of the first green at Lake Charles Country Club? What's left of the first green? And it's between the first green and the second tee. It's fenced in. You don't see many of these on golf courses. Is it like a tiger? A cemetery. Oh. And oh, it, that, almost, makes, that makes more sense than It almost hugs the green. So I've seen them on the peripheral of properties, okay. but I've never really seen one on the interior of a golf course. And, huh. and from what Stuart Kramer told me, Gray Little is buried there, the longtime professional. But also – Now I'm going to talk over you. Sorry, Lindsay. Uh, like who gets to be buried at a cemetery on a golf course? Well, the cemetery was there before it became a golf course. So Lake Charles Country Club, uh, the current form of it came about in 1959 when Ralph Plummer – did the routing of the golf course. So that cemetery had been there uh, longer than those current versions of the golf holes. The club is also uh, the birthplace or the, the past home or where two PGA tour players really got their starts, two former PGA tour players, Willie Wood, who was one of the greatest college golfers of all time, a four-time NCAA division one, all American at, at Oklahoma state and Mike Heinen, who ended up winning a Houston open. And they're both still active in the club, they come to the club's uh, champions dinner and, you know, they're on the wall of champions. And then Matt, you might remember this name. The fourth person on their wall of champions is uh, Alvin Dart. You remember who he was? 
Uh, Al Dark, wasn't he? He was with the Indians, wasn't he? He was a Major League Baseball yeah, manager. Yeah. I, Al Dark. Al Dark died in 2014. Played for the Braves, the Giants, the Cardinals, the Cubs, the Phillies. Managed the Giants, the A's. Yeah, he managed the Indians from 1968 to 71. And then the Padres. And he... Uh, Three-time All-Star, he was on the 54 Giants, and then he managed the uh, 74 A's. So two two World Series, one as a player, one as a manager. Yeah, Al Dark. So those baseball guys love to play golf. Uh, we talked about that on the last podcast with uh, mm-hmm. former Major League Baseball pitcher Paul Mahalam, who right. now owns part of Hattiesburg Country Club. So anyway, so yeah, that, that was uh, the morning in Lake Charles. And then in the afternoon, I went to a new golf course, Matt. Okay, so... This is where you were supposed to meet the mayor. Uh, they they were literally rolling out the carpet for you, trying to get you as much civic engagement. Now, you didn't wind up meeting this mayor. And, and we're, we looked up this guy, and it would not surprise us if we were joking if he ran for governor in like you know, five or ten years. Just kind of has that vibe. But this is Mallard Golf Club. New Muni course, which I love. Uh, some good names here in the notes. I'll let you talk about all those folks. Uh, what is the deal with the new Muni, Mallard? This is a really unique project. Lake Charles had a golf course called Mallard Cove Golf Course. It was out by the Chenault Airport. And the Chenault Airport, from what I understand, is an industrial-type airport and needed the land. So it involved a pretty intricate land swap with the city and a developer and the airport and they moved the location of the municipal golf course built built a new one and it's not that far from where the the mallard cove golf club was well when the hurricanes uh came through they were already constructing the new golf course and they were going to keep playing on the old golf course until the new golf course opened well when the hurricanes came through they realized that it wasn't worth it trying to repair mallard cove because mallard golf club was getting ready to open in 2021 mallard golf club Built on a flat site, here we go again, that actually used to be a rice plantation and an oil field. Rice and oil. Sounds so the right. city gets this land to, to build a new golf course, but it's not necessarily the, the ideal land to, to build a new golf no. course on. So in comes uh, a bunch of different people. Uh, Jeff Bloom, the, the golf course architect, who had, has been doing uh, the master plan and the consulting work at Lake Charles Country Club since 1999 he's been involved there for a long time and really entrenched in that club uh the city hired him to do the the golf course and you know jeff was explaining what the land was like when they got there basically you'd wear like fishing waders or high boots and you would just have muck up to your up to your knees so but uh through grit through perseverance through all these storms you know through this intricate land swap they got the golf course built and done it opened in october here of 2021 and uh jeff bloom met us out there and said guy it's a miracle we're standing here and this course uh will be a future long profile in golf course industry yeah. i don't want to give it all away on the uh, podcast but yeah. had a chance to spend the uh the afternoon there with the superintendent robert frey who was the superintendent at the mallard cove golf course the the old one nick johnson is the director of agronomy for sterling golf he came from houston to spend time with us sterling golf is the uh, texas-based management company that's overseeing the operations and maintenance of the new golf course the pro jonathan jester was there what a great name yeah he, he he had some funny stories and good stories about how the golf course is already playing 
And then some people from the city came out, uh, city administrator John Cardone and the city publicist Katie Harrington. And yeah, we were supposed to be uh, met by Mayor Nick Hunter, but he suffered an ankle in- injury and couldn't make it. I'm supposed to interview him by phone. What I did was I interviewed uh, John Cardone first and then spent most of the time with the, the golf people. Matt, as you know, yeah, of course. I'm not very much into politics. <laughs> No, so the, I happily talk to people that can make one of our stories better, and John Cardone will definitely make the story better, and I think Nick Hunter will too. But uh, I was kind of nervous about the whole thing because I can talk and ask golf people questions all day and all night and all the next day. But I was going through this. I'm like, what the heck am I going to ask a politician, Matt? So what did I, you ask the politician? I kept it very vanilla, you know, golf-based yeah. questions, uh, what the golf course and quality recreation means to the city, the determination that the city employees, such as Robert Frey, showed in you know, getting this golf course built, uh, those type of things, you know, what, what they envision the, the the course meaning to the city. You know, not a lot of cities have new golf courses to market no. right now. There are not a lot of new municipal golf courses in the United States Uh you know, how the whole thing came about, which is quite quite a story that involved a lot of different entities. So uh, the, the course was super impressive because you pull in and you know, there are all these high grasses around it. And you're like, is there even a golf course here? You can't really tell because it's dead flat land and native grasses and different things are growing up around it. And then you go through it and you're like, these are 18 imaginative holes. They're all different. You know, it's kind of amazing what Jeff Bloom did and uh, what Robert Frey and his team are doing. And I, I done at golf was involved in the building of the golf course. Every hole had unique angles. There were some ponds built. There were two natural wetlands on the course that were basically, you know, no touch areas that they had to design the holes around. Uh, there was a railroad tracks that go through the middle of the property. There is going to be some, there's a housing development on the far end of the course. And as Lake Charles grows, there are going to eventually be some homes that are going to be built in the interior of the golf course, not many, just around a few few holes. So those had to be factored in, into the all all the design decisions. And I was just super impressed with uh, just how creative this place was because you just, like I said, you pull into it and you're like, is there really a golf course here? There's a public driving range that's going to have grass tees. Huh. You know, the, the clubhouse will be opening, you know, down the road here. So they got the golf course done first. It's been a pretty uh, slow opening. They're taking their time with it. It was just open on weekends initially. And now I think they're going to a few days a week. And uh, really, there's a lot of symbolism behind it, too, because you, you think about all Lake Charles has been through in the last year and a half. And to get a new golf course opened is uh, – very meaningful for that city and that community and shows that things can be rebuilt and the progress can be made, you know, when you're dealing with natural disasters. So I'm really looking forward to writing this story and we'll have much more about Mallard golf club here in a few months. That's cool. And I don't want you to use up all your good stuff here. Let's take a very quick detour because we're already 40 minutes in very quick detour because it has nothing to do with golf, a night walk around tiger stadium in Baton Rouge. So I was going from Lake Charles to New Orleans. So I left Lake Charles on Thursday evening after having dinner with Jeff Bloom and Nick Johnson. And we had some great stories at that dinner. And I had gumbo for the first time, too, which wasn't as spicy. Wait, as first I, time in your life? Yes. How is that even possible? Wow, okay. I guess it's probably possible because I'd never been in Louisiana in my life. Fair. So it was about a three-hour drive from Lake Charles to New Orleans. You know, get out of Lake Charles on a Thursday night. Had to be at the city park courses in New Orleans at 7 a.m. the next day. I was looking at my GPS and saw that I was passing through Baton Rouge. In fact, I stayed on the uh, east end of Baton Rouge that night, which was only an hour from City Park in New Orleans. So I I guess I just only had a two-hour drive that night. 
I had to stop at Tiger Stadium. I've been to a lot of the major college football stadiums, uh, you know, through my past sports writing jobs or since uh, getting this job, I've tried to pick a few stadiums off here and there, whether it's going to games or walking around them and seeing them. Well, Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge was one that I had never seen. So uh, got a chance to pull in. Uh, it was all lit up, which was really super cool. I don't know if they do that every night or they did it to announce Brian Kelly's coming or they just do it. Maybe recruits are in town. I it's don't amazing know. how quickly he, you know, he picked up a, a Cajun accent, by the way. Brian yeah, Kelly. Yeah. Who knows if that's going to work out down there. That doesn't seem like an ideal fit based on what I learned about Louisiana and what I know about uh, hard-headed Midwestern Irish Catholic football coaches. But that's a uh, – I guess that's a story for another podcast. Not ours. But I saw that the stadium was lit up. Uh, park, really awesome presentation. Uh, they have just all these plaques and um, – statues honoring their their legend there's a billy cannon statue there's a, a tiger stat statue there he's like i don't know if they're statues or statue plaques for all their championship na- teams they have plaques for all the all americans they got plaques for everything there and you just look at the list of players that were all americans there and wow it makes you realize how much football talents come through that university mm-hmm. especially in the last 20 years i mean the last three coaches that have coached at lsu nick saban les miles and edo have all won national championships that's so right. that's a place to go where you can get some talent and win pretty quickly saw the pete maravich center which is right next to Pistol. Yeah. yeah tiger stadium and the thing that i didn't realize matt they actually have a tiger habitat like you would see at the zoo for mike the tiger now this is where you'd have have a tiger not on a golf course but on the college campus so it's a tiger habitat it's like a big zoo display it's right wedged between the pete maravich center and tiger stadium and I'm just looking at it, and some people walk by, students, and I go, is there a tiger in there? And they're like, yeah, but they put them in hiding at night, so the tiger's not out at night. They probably don't want, like, drunk college kids coming by, throwing stuff into the cage, or mm-hmm. maybe the tiger needs to sleep. I don't know. But had that been daylight, I maybe would have seen a, a tiger there in a zoo-like display on a college campus. I had no idea that that was the case there at LSU. If you ever drive through Baton Rouge and you're a college football fan, park there, walk it walk around it, check it out. Uh, even if you don't like LSU, it's a pretty amazing college football venue, and I hope to get a chance to go to a game there eventually. For the record, Tigers, because I knew Lions slept a lot. Lions can sleep like 18 to 20 hours a day. Tigers are the same way. Tigers can sleep 18 to 20 hours a day. They just go into hiding. You probably are not going to see the Tiger. Much higher chance of not seeing the Tiger than... Enough of a detour. Let's get back to golf. You spent some time in and around New Orleans as well uh bayou oaks at city park and i'm gonna mispronounce this chatoa chateau golf and country club oh it's chateau without the extra letters okay so very french i should have i should have picked up on that so bayou oaks at city park and chateau golf and country club yeah speaking of wildlife city park is one of the more fascinating golf venues i've ever been so bayou oaks at city park it's now called way back when or until Hurricane Katrina, it was four golf courses. Hurricane Katrina comes through. Things change a lot in New Orleans, and they're still living it every day there, which is something I realize. That's Mm -hmm. something that just does not go away, Uh, even though we're, what, 16 years now distant from it, 15, 16 years since Hurricane Katrina. It's still a – At least. Plays a big part in a lot of the decisions that are made there and a lot of the conversations in New Orleans. Uh, Hurricane Katrina – happens you know four golf courses there the city has bigger things to worry about at that time than what's going to happen with the golf courses but eventually 
a plan was concocted and they went from four to two golf courses at the city park location in 2017 uh, the reese jones design uh south course opens and they kept the north course so fillmore avenue goes through the property there and the south course is on one side of the road and the north course is on the other side of the road the south course is a a new golf course uh, built with uh, quite an arrangement. A group called the Bayou Foundation oversees what happens there, and it's kind of like an East-like type effort in New Orleans. The proceeds from the South Course go towards uh, revitalizing some of the neighborhoods around the golf course, and it's really a place where golf is doing a lot of good. It's also providing a lot of uh, green space in the middle of the city, and you see all sorts of things there. As we were going around, and I'm there with uh, Superintendent Ryan McCavitt, who's been there uh, you know, even before the, the South Course Open. This is the fourth growing in his career. All he, and in fact, he did the growing at Oak Wing in Alexandria, then went back to his native Illinois, and then came back down to Louisiana to become the first superintendent and do the growing at the South Course at Bayou Oaks at City Park. And I'm going around with Ryan, and we're seeing all sorts of bird species. The alligators weren't out, but they're they're down there. They're in the water features. We get to the seventh tee. Uh, some roosters jump out of the tree and just start walking towards the the green on the par three, and right off the right, right on the course. Yeah, and basically you can see and grow everything there. You can grow uh, warm weather weeds, cool weather weeds. It's all Bermuda grass. It's it's warm weather turf, but you can see all these different. You know, there are hundreds of bird species that that call that course home. Uh, golfers of all different uh, abilities play the North Course in particular. Like the South Course now is a if you're not from New Orleans, you know you're you're paying over 100 bucks around because because it's a, a high, it's got that high end type feel. You know, initially maybe it was going to be built to host the PGA Tour tournament, but that's remained at TPC Louisiana. Hmm. Uh, so all the proceeds from this South Course, this Reese Jones, Jones design, it's very uh, it's very playable. It's got it's got width and uh, options, and they had to keep a lot of existing these huge live oak trees they had to keep around for, um, you know, environmental reasons because that's an important part of city park. And, you know, so you got the new golf course and then you got what I would call the, um, the grittier golf course on the other side of the road. And that's really where the locals play and had a chance to go around that golf course too. You know, I wanted to make sure that I was spending equal time on both golf courses and uh, Ryan McCavitt, like I said, who's the, the superintendent and oversees the agronomy operation there, which is about 25 to 30 people, uh, took me around both golf courses, and I had a chance to meet Assistant Superintendent Keith Bryant, who started uh, working on the range at City Park, and then Hurricane Katrina happens. He had to move away from Louisiana, move back to Louisiana, started working on the uh, crew at TPC uh, Louisiana there, and then you know moved over to uh, the City Park golf courses where he's been now there for a while, and you just kind of hear the stories of somebody like him that you know grew up in the neighborhood around the golf course and has seen that everything that, that that city and that property has gone through. And you realize that this is a very meaningful golf course in, in the middle of a, a, a big city. And, you know, thousands of different players play there. All sorts of different people work there and get career opportunities there. And it's one of those pl- urban golf settings where you can see that, that golf contributes to a gr- greater good. And I found it a fascinating place. And, you know, like most places we visit, just wish I had more time to spend there. And hopefully I get a chance to go back and, uh, do some deeper stories about it because I, I, Bayou Oaks City Park uh, deserves a lot of attention and recognition, and especially, like I said, because there is a greater purpose there than just providing those high-level conditions on the south course. You spent less than three days in 
Louisiana, you're going to wind up with probably at least three magazine stories, which is pretty good. Anything else from Bayou Oaks, or do you want to wrap up with Chateau Golf and Country Club? Yeah, let's go over to Chateau Golf and Country Club, which is in Kenner, Louisiana, suburban New Orleans. It was by the airport, so it was a perfect place for a final (laughs) afternoon visit before flying home. Uh, Got a chance to go around with uh, Superintendent Gary McCullough, who's an interesting story. He was uh, started his career in turf, went to Mississippi State, then you know, right around the time of Katrina, a little before Katrina, left to go into the, the landscape in, industry and did some good things there, but ha- had the golf bug and got back into it a, a few years ago, became the yep. superintendent at Chateau Golf and Country Club. And right now they're doing a short game area project and hopefully, you know, they, down the road they get to do some other capital improvements. And you know who joined us to show us what he's doing with the uh, the short course? So this kind of puts the whole time in Mississippi and Louisiana together. Did it was it Nathan Crazy? Yes, he Nathan ca- Crazy crossed the border for you. Yes, he came to uh, uh, participate in that visit, and he was doing some work on the uh, Mississippi side of the border down on the Gulf Coast. So made a day of it, and my trip was kind of like a giant circle because I mm-hmm. flew into New Orleans, then went to Biloxi, Mississippi, then Hattiesburg, Mississippi, then Natchez, Mississippi, then Alexandria, Louisiana, then Lake Charles, Louisiana, and then flew home from New Orleans. So if you look at it. Basically a gigantic circle. Mm -hmm. Using a metaphor here, the trip came full circle when I saw Nathan uh, greeting us in the parking lot with a smile at Chateau Golf and Country Club. If you have not listened to Greens with Envy 34, normally you don't need to listen to these episodes in any particular order, and you probably don't even need to here. But if you want to hear more about Nathan Crace, he pops up like three or four times in a 45 or 50-minute episode on Greens with Envy 34, which is where Guy talked about his Mississippi trip. That's that's a heck of a, a heck of a trip. I, I, so I'm curious. I'm not going to ask anything that stood out because we've talked two hours over the last two episodes about all these courses, and they're, they all sound amazing in their own way. If folks want to plan their own trip, and maybe not 12 courses at 11 facilities in five days, but if they want to double up, triple up, get to four or five places – uh, on an ambitious road trip. How did you even put this together? This is a heck of a trip. Uh, through some help. Uh, yeah. I got to give Nathan Crace and Jeff Bloom credit for helping. In fact, uh, Nathan was the one that was kind of begging me to go down there for a while. Okay. And those conversations started when the American Society of Golf Course Architects meeting was in Cleveland. And then Jeff Bloom actually, on the night of the Donald Ross banquet, uh, caught me in the, the lobby as I was walking to to my car there and said, Hey, I got a story for you in Louisiana. <laughs> and he said, next time you're in Louisiana, let me know. There's quite a story in Lake Charles. So yeah. I kind of used connections. And then from there, uh, just started doing research on courses and the different levels of facilities I wanted to see. I don't try to just go to the real high end, big name courses. Yeah. You know, we try to see a cross section of the golf industry when we're there and you know, we're not doing it to say, look at me. I was at, you know, this big name club and Oh Matt, here's a bunch of, uh, Hats from this club, and I'm going to take a selfie by by the uh, by the hole where some famous pro golfer hit that shot. That's not how we do our trips. We go to where the stories are. We mm-hmm. try to see the the real industry, you know, the the real in air quotes, and we try to get real. And uh, I was really fortunate that people were so cooperative on this. I think I mentioned in the Mississippi episode there were some bonus uh, visits that kind of just occurred. And one thing about Chateau Golf and Country Club, and this really stuck out to me, is running along. First, 18th, and third holes there is a is a canal, and it's a pretty deep canal, and you're thinking, you know, 
it sort of adds aesthetics to those holes too. And it also goes underneath the road and the Chateau Golf and Country Club property. In fact, the the, the, the practice green, the one that Nathan's going to be working on in the short game area, is built atop the canal. And you see this canal system and Lake Pontchartrain is right there. And I was asking Gary about it. Well, that's where it really, it really hit me that in New Orleans, you're below sea level. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the biggest of all natural disasters to happen in the United States, New Orleans was at the epicenter of it. So you see this canal, and I, I saw levees and structures like that around uh, Bayou Oaks at City Parks. I think that canal really, it, it hit me just the infrastructure that is needed for the city of New Orleans and that whole part of the country to exist below sea level with the, the ferocity of storms they get. And, you know, this year there have been, there's been over 100 inches of rain. And then going around with Gary McCullough, uh, he's showing me some of the um, damage that they're still recovering from with uh, Hurricane Ida, which came through New Orleans this year. And that's something I forgot to mention when we were talking about Bayou Oaks at City Park is that the Hurricane Ida, you know, closed the golf courses for a few weeks in, in that part of the country. And, you know, Gary's showing me, you know, trees that still need to be cleaned up in the side of the road. So there's a boulevard in front of the club. There, there's sort of like a, a two lanes on one side, two lanes on the other side, and there's like a grass median in the middle with trees. And, you know, here we are still a few months out from Hurricane Ida, and it's just still filled with brush and branches and things that people, you know, clean up and put them on the side of the road. And then they have these big trucks come by and pick up all the tree debris. And there's still trees hanging into ponds at Chateau Golf and Country Club. You know, you look at the homes that have been damaged. So I give anyone that works on a golf course anywhere in the United States a ton of credit. It's not an easy job. It's a very important job because you're providing such a um, awesome recreational space for people to boost their physical and mental health. But I, to, to be a superintendent or to be work on a golf course maintenance team or be involved in the industry in that part of the country takes some grit and takes some determination and takes that, you know, savvy to bounce back. And that really hit me being, especially in Lake Charles and New Orleans at the end of the trip. You listed as themes here on the format, a couple of things, obviously lots and lots of water. And you've, you've talked about the hurricanes that have just ripped through there, even in the last two years, a uh, lot of municipal golf, as you pointed out, 71 daily fee and 29 municipals out of 131 facilities in the state. So what is that? That's uh, uh, more than 80% of the facilities are, are publicly accessible. And then quality pro and superintendent relationships, which you see not everywhere. So that's, you know, at least along the cross-section of courses that you visit, that's good to see. I don't get to interact with golf professionals that often, but on some of these visits, they Know, just willingly brought the, the pro along and had the pro talk to me too. And that was cool to hear that side of it. So uh, amazing trip, amazing experience to spend a week in Mississippi and Louisiana, tons of good stories and content coming up. And uh, before we get going here, Matt, just one final apology for what happened on the last podcast. No, no, no. You've, you've already done this. Uh, L dog, look, look what you started. Well, that's it. You've uh, spent another perfectly good hour listening to Greens with Envy on the Superintendent Radio Network for Guy Cipriano and everybody here at Golf Course Industry from Dave Zai and Russ Warner and for most of this year, Andrew Hatfield, all the other folks who help us put out the magazine, Jim Blaney and Irene Sweeney and all of our incredible columnists and contributors, folks in and out of the building. Thank you. It has been a tremendous year. It's been a tremendous year for us 
And more important, it's been a tremendous year for the golf industry as a whole. We look forward to bringing you loads more podcasts and online stories and magazines in 2022. If you ever have a story idea, if you ever have news you want to share, always, please feel free to reach out anytime. Uh, our emails, I'm at M-L-A-W-E-L-L at G-I-E dot net. Guy is at G-C-I, very easy to remember, G-C-I-P-R-I-A-N-O at G-I-E dot net. Love to talk with you. Love to tell the stories in this industry. And thank you so much for your continued support of everything that we do. And Matt, before we go, can you do one thing for me? You're really good at voiceovers and you got that oh, radio no. voice. Okay. Can you do Go Tigers and Ed Ogeron voice to end this podcast? All right. I'm going to give people like three seconds in case they want to turn this off early. Go Tigers!